Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. We're in Luke chapter 3 this morning. We're going to try to get through the whole chapter today. Luke uh, is developing his gospel, his good news around Jesus, according to all that he can find on record. So he's the historian of the gospel writers. He is gathering first-person witnesses, which is why we see some stories left out that are in Matthew and Mark and and even John. And other things that are put in is because he's able to find them. And he's adding first-person witnesses to testimony, Uh, to Roman records and to temple records, which we're definitely going to see some of that today. Chapter 1, he gave an account of both the births of John the Baptist and Jesus, uh, the the visitation of Gabriel to Zacharias and Mary, Elizabeth and Mary both having inspired Holy Spirit proclamations. John the Baptist then is born. Zacharias proclaims a blessing on, on Messiah with prophetic writing so the whole town knows Messiah's coming when Zechariah, when John the Baptist is born. Chapter 2, Jesus is born. Same thing. The shepherds show up. The entire town knows that Messiah just got born. The only thing is these are really small, humble towns, right? It's not Jerusalem that's getting this proclaimed in it. Jesus then is presented at the temple in Jerusalem, and Simeon and Anna, two witnesses, both declare him to be the Messiah. Now Jerusalem has had it declared. Problem is Jerusalem's so big, it just goes kind of under the radar. But you got people at the temple declaring that Messiah's arrived, prophecies recorded for both of them, and we see those quotations come out for Simeon and Anna. So there is a record in the temple that Messiah's been proclaimed. And at age 12, in chapter 2, Jesus starts to go about his father's business, which is typical of Jewish tradition. He grows in wisdom, he grows in stature, and he grows in favor with both God and man. What a childhood. And then in verse 1, Luke starts a new section. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and the region of Trachonitis, and it sounds like a disease, and Lysanias, uh, tetrarch of Abilene, and while Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. So again with Luke, when he starts these sections, he starts them with a historical rooting. It's the only religion in the world where we're claiming historical events have happened in a public discourse. There's this new section, very specific dating. Five different leaders are linked to this date, which makes it fairly easy to put at 29 AD. There's some debate about that, but the debate's risen up in like the last 30 years largely in progressive institutions. It's 29 AD is when all these things line up. They don't have, like we can say 2023 because that's the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Luke's writing, they haven't changed the entire calendar to go around Jesus. They're still operating off of human kings, but human kings die. So it makes for a bad chronology system. When, when, you, when they decided to move to the Jesus chronology system, the idea is Jesus was resurrected and hasn't died. So it's 2023, the year of our Lord Jesus Christ, Anno Domine in the Latin. But here it's 29, 
is how we would date that. We can also see from these names that this was a turbulent time in, the, in Palestine. There's internal strife, there's conflict. We see these terms tetrarchs. Tetrarchs were literally these divided rulers of this area. Tiberius rises to politics about 27 years before this. So we got a different uh, Caesar. Last time we saw Luke give this reference, it was Augustus. He had, Augustus had two children. Both of them were killed. Both of them were killed within a year of Tiberius, the stepson, um, being put into a position where he could be the heir. So under very suspect circumstances. In 12 AD, Tiberius comes back from Germany and he gets about the business of administration because the empire is crumbling. But it's not crumbling in a way that the average person would see it. It's crumbling from the inside. So after this, starting in 30 AD, um, Tiberius pretty much loses it. So this is interesting. Jesus starts his ministry in 29 AD, or, or John the Baptist here is out preaching in the wilderness, and a year later, the emperor of Rome absolutely goes nuts. Something just clicks with this guy. This is secular history, I quote. Executions were now a stimulus for his fury, and he ordered the death of all who were lying in prison under accusation of complicity with Sejanus, one of his competitors. There lay, singly or in heaps, the unnumbered dead of every age, sex, and in age and sex, the illustrious with the obscure, kinsfolks and friends were not allowed to be near their dead or even weep over them or even look at them too long. Spies were set around them and the noted sorrow for each mourner following the rotting corpses until they were dragged to the Tiber were floating or driven onto the bank. No one dared burn or touch the bodies. Put that in contrast to the end of chapter 2. Jesus rises in wisdom and in stature. But the emperor of the known world, the king of earth, suddenly absolutely cracks, like the sanity's gone. And you see a king of peace rise up, and at the same time, Tiberius um, has no idea what he's doing. He leaves Rome, and he actually leaves the administration of Rome to anybody who wants it. He goes into hiding, literally hides himself out in a retreat center, and is resolved to let Rome go the way Rome's going to go. So the people that are fighting for power in Rome under these names are all cutthroat kinds of people. And then you get the priesthood, Annas and Caiaphas. This is a father and a stepson. They're allowed to practice as long as they submit to Rome. They're largely known as corrupt spiritual leaders. The Jews generally understand Annas and Caiaphas as Rome's stooges. And the only reason they can continue to be there is because Rome's happy that they're there, because they comply. So this creates in, in the Jewish community a series of factions that you just don't see in the Old Testament. All these different groups start popping out. Um, if you're looking at archaeology, we've found Caiaphas's tomb as, as, just as recent as 1990. They found a tomb marked Caiaphas. They found a guy buried there that was about 60 years old. The word, of the, Lord, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Chapter 180 says that he spent his time in the wilderness. That's where we left John. He's been waiting. He's been praying. He's been out there for some time. And now God comes to him in verse 2 and tells him to go ahead and start preaching, start preaching this message. So John does, and he preaches a message of baptism. So we get this idea introduced. And, and I want to point out here, and I, I think this is kind of fun. Um, 
Luke roots this historical context within all this Roman turmoil. But meanwhile, off in the wilderness, there's a guy who hears from God, and that word is to start preaching. And I, I think sometimes as believers, we get really caught up. And sometimes God's calling us into that fray. But we get caught up in what the world thinks is so important. But meanwhile, off in the wilderness, there's a bunch of believers that study God's word together. And I think God moves through the simple and the humble more than he moves through what makes it onto the TV. And that God's kingdom is simply not at the world's kingdom. It's not the same thing. And I love the shift that Luke makes from the turmoil of Rome, the, the corruption of the spiritual system. But meanwhile, there's one guy in the wilderness just speaking truth and saying what's right, even though the world maybe doesn't want to hear him. He speaks of baptism. And John the Baptist is not your typical guy, right? He's, it's not a home church, but it's definitely a small community. And he shows up, and when people show up, sometimes he calls them snakes, as we'll see this chapter. Like, this is not a seeker-friendly church with John the Baptist. There's no place to sit. There isn't comfortable stuff. They don't have a, a great worship leader going on. There's a, a guy that, you know, eats locusts and honey, and he tells people that they're snakes. Why the heck are they there? So it, it, this is John the Baptist. But he preaches a baptism. Baptism at this time is common for Gentiles. That's what makes John the Baptist so unique. He started preaching to Jews that they needed to get baptized, which means they need to humble themselves to the position of a Gentile. In Jewish tradition, you got baptized if you were a Gentile that wanted to become a Jew. You wanted to join the church, you needed to get baptized. And the symbolism of it was a washing of water or a cleansing. It goes back to... Um, Naaman being told to wash in the river seven times. Remember that? To cleanse his leprosy. So the, this Jewish tradition kind of comes up. If you're born a Jew, you were already blessed by God. You didn't need to repent. And that was kind of the prevailing worldview. In fact, this idea of religion being one where you don't need to repent is actually getting popular again. Because humans love this idea that I can be right with God and I'm perfect and I've done nothing wrong. And God just loves me for it. But this idea of a baptism, and I want to be particular in verse 3, of repentance. The word repentance there in the Greek is metanoia. It means it's, it's the root word that we have for metamorphosis. We use it for an absolute and total change of something going from one nature to another, a 180. Repentance, metanoia. To change somebody's mind, to do it on purpose with a compunction towards reversal, a turnabout. People get saved and they think they can just kind of misdirect a little bit. Right? Here's the path I'm on in life. I'm going to get saved and I'm just going to change a little bit because I like my path for the most part. But repentance doesn't convey that idea. It conveys that if you're going your way in life, it's a complete 180 transformation to go the opposite direction of the one you were going in. And baptism of repentance then implies a regret for sin, distancing yourself from sin, and it's your first action that you take to walk away from sin. It's a change mentality. Paul says it this way, a baptism of repentance, Romans 12, 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed, the same word, by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is good and acceptable and a perfect will of God. The idea of becoming a Christian is total transformation. And anything short of that, and you're really you're not getting the blessings that God has for you in a Christian life. So repent And use this as a symbol of your turning point. The problem wasn't Rome. The problem wasn't Caiaphas. John's teaching is the problem is you. The problem is me. It's not, Rome's not going to make or break my relationship with God. I'm going to do that. 
So John preaches this idea of Jewish people having to accept the idea that God has to deal with my sin. And that's preparing the way for Messiah. And, I, and sometimes I think we, as believers, we've heard this so many times that it's just part of our vernacular. It's part of how we talk. And we forget how revolutionary this was. And to Jewish people to say, I need to do something. Well, I've given my sacrifices at the temple. I'm a pretty good person. I don't do anything. I'm, I'm not Jeffrey Dahmer. I don't do those things. And humans will often compare themselves to other humans. But John the Baptist's idea of preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, John's being very particular with his language. Nope, you have sins. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You have to deal with those. Now here's the difference. John the, baptism's, uh, John the Baptist's baptism in water doesn't remove the sin. It's a symbol of my heart turning away from it. Right? And people confuse that. Baptism doesn't save you. It's a symbol of your heart moving in a different direction. By the way, it's summertime. And if there's anybody in the room that needs to be baptized, you should let me know that before it's winter. Because in Minnesota, we baptize, you know, generally in the summertime. Um, we could probably find a heated hot tub and do it in the winter if we had to. But that's, that's being pretty harsh. Um, the scars of sin might remain after you're baptized. But the punishment of sin, the punishment of sin is removed, released, or remitted. The word remission there is to take away a punishment. It's not to take away the scars or the background. Obviously, when you get saved, you remember the sins of your past. They are part of who you are. You can't change that. But the punishment for those sins gets removed. So I have to repent. I have to be free from sin. And what's left is actually being free. What's left when I walk away from sin is that sin doesn't entangle me anymore. But you have to choose it. The baptism then is a recognition, a humility thing, that Jewish people are going to reduce themselves to the level of a Gentile and admit the fact that they're sinners. This prepares the way for Jesus. So we get baptized, Romans 6, into Christ, not into John's baptism. So there's, a, there's an identification that happens here. And, and, and all of this gets predicted in the Word, as John writes in verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill brought low, the crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So this is from Isaiah 40, if you don't already have that in your cross notes. It starts with God saying, comfort, yes, comfort for my people. This is Isaiah 40. It's a great chapter. The Old Testament has God speaking of Messiah as our comfort, as a balm, as the warrior judge of all. And this chapter presents very, two very distinct images of Messiah. One is a comforter and a friend and a balm to your soul. The other is a judge that will determine the right from wrong and punish the wicked and bless the good. So you have these two faces to Jesus in Isaiah 40, and this is what Luke is referencing right here. The comfort is the appearance of the Messiah, the announcement that he's the king, and it comes by a voice in the wilderness. We don't know the name of the voice, but Luke here is claiming that voice in the wilderness is John the Baptist. In the Old Testament, there's one major character that did his ministry from the wilderness. That's Elijah. So the spirit of Elijah just being out in the middle of the wilds, preaching it out like everybody else, this is where we start to see discussion about, well, was John the Baptist the spirit of Elijah? Was he actually Elijah? I'm going to leave that to theology. At the end of the day, I don't think Luke makes that claim, so we don't need to make the claim. 
he was John in the wilderness, and this prophecy was as much about him as anybody else. It says, prepare the way. This is like chapter 1, verse 17. This is the prophecy about John the Baptist. Gabriel said to Zacharias, John's going to prepare the way. And Luke's claim with this passage is that these things are being fulfilled. To make his paths straight. I like this. We did this when we were going back. Remember when we were going back through the law? And there's this odd little law about refuge cities. And they're very particular that in, in, as they built their nation, God instructed them to have cities that were all about an hour's run away. Like no matter where you were in Israel, you could get to a refuge city if you had to. So if your axe head falls off while you're chopping lumber and it hits your partner in the head and they die, you run to a refuge city because you don't want the family to start a vengeance feud against you. So you go to the, you basically put yourself, you throw yourself at the mercy of the courts. That phrase comes right out of refuge cities. And the roads were really important in this law. They were told to make the paths straight. You don't make, if you're going, doing, no, 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 no. You do some terraforming because these roads to the refuge cities needed to be straight and they needed to not have what were called stumbling blocks. And in, in the Middle East, you might have like, a, if you're digging a road alongside a hill, there'd be rocks that would fall down the hill and they would clutter the road. These cities need to be like a running track. You didn't have stuff that got people tied up on it. So you made the paths straight, you cleared them out to fill valleys and bring low mountains means there weren't, a, you didn't do a lot of this. You just tried to make them flat and straight. So if you wanted the mercy of God and to throw yourself at the courts, you had nothing getting in your way for doing that. No excuses. So John's doing a spiritual version of that by telling people to repent. This idea that maybe there's something that you've done wrong that offends God makes your path to God easy and straight. It's the simplest way to get to God is to simply admit the truth that you're not God and to understand that relationship. Verse 6 says, all flesh, the path is for everybody. Luke's focus is everybody, not just the Jews. All the world, this is a theme for him. And we see an image of building roads, roads that go somewhere. Where, what's the direction of these roads? The salvation of God. Luke directly takes this image and says, this is a spiritual image. And so for centuries, they tried this, this self-rule, the judge rule. Israel tried king rule. They tried nobody rules. And what they found after millennia was that humans at their best, with God's best guidance, can't rule themselves well. And so the only solution left is God's rule. The rest of Isaiah 40 has the voice asking God what he should be saying. So this is a great, like John would be reading this grow up. If John thinks I'm the voice in the wilderness, that's what God's called me to, you'd read Isaiah 40 very carefully. Verse 7, you're supposed to warn them. The grass withers, the flower fades. We all die. Verse 8 says you're supposed to teach them. God's word is going to stand. So John in the wilderness would have been teaching that. He would have warned them. He would have taught them. And then verse 9, he's supposed to show them. He is supposed to say to them, behold your God, which is exactly what he says when Jesus shows up. He tells everybody what to look at. That he might decrease and Jesus might increase. So this Isaiah 40, great side study for you this week, if you want to kind of look and, and read it as though you're John the Baptist as a young man, going, okay, what's my job? What am I supposed to do? Well, he's been given instructions in Isaiah 40, exactly what he's supposed to do out in the wilderness. And he's doing it. Main point? Messiah's coming. He's coming for everybody. We need to get ready. Or the song, people get ready. Jesus is coming. Soon we'll be going home. I don't know if you know that song, but that's what John the Baptist is out there doing. Here's the grass fades part. 
This is him warning people, verse 7. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers. Okay, this is the welcome committee. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I, I get shocked by this because I think generally as a Christian, I try to be nice to people. John's not making any effort whatsoever to be nice to these people. Why? What is it? And here's, here's a thought before we go too far with this. John's dad was Zacharias who did the temple offering, which is where he heard from Gabriel, right? That makes John the Baptist a, in the priestly tradition. He's a Levite. He would have grown up knowing these people. He would have met them. He would have had history with them. It's not that big of a community. So when these Sadducees and Pharisees come walking up to John's ministry, he knows who he's dealing with. And he's probably had some past affairs with them. Luke doesn't get into that, but we do get this idea that John wasn't necessarily there to make people happy. He was there to get people ready. And I think sometimes that's a balance for believers that we want to be nice to people, yes, but you can't love people all the way to hell. That's not love. Sometimes you have to wake people up. And sometimes when people are looking and searching in all the wrong places, it's okay to tell a brother, tell a sister, you're looking in all the wrong places. Redirect. And John does it very bluntly. Therefore, verse 8, bear fruits worthy of repentance and don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It reminds you of that Jesus with the fig tree, right? When, they, when it says he is Abraham, that's that argument that being a Hebrew isn't going to save you. Just because your parents were believers doesn't mean that you're right with God. Everyone has to do it for themselves. You're not even close and it's a false teaching of the time that if you were descendant of Abraham, that was your salvation. So ignoring God's word uh, in doing this uh, would be a problem. So Israel is a root for the Messiah, a nation that God blesses to show the world the providence of God. And John makes this reference of the axe that gets laid to the root. God promises a Nazar. And we talked about this with Jesus of Nazareth, right? The Nazar or the branch that grows out of a stump has to have a stump to start with. So John's familiar with this concept. He's familiar with this Old Testament reference that out of the Mosaic system, the tree of Israel, there's going to be a sprout that comes up that becomes the new tree. And Israel has the great honor and privilege of being that tree, but also of being God's favored country on earth who he's sustained through all of history. And there's promises about Israel at the end of days which means God will sustain them until the end of days. They're special to God. Make no mistake on that. Also, John's got this bluntness. The axe is laid. Notice that this is in the present tense. In John's head, that tree is, is cut off. The axe has arrived. And John, I think, has a very, like, he's ready to see this system fall down. I'm thinking the reason he's in a wilderness is he got sick and tired of the hypocrisy down at the temple. And that's part of why he's like, I'm just going to go off and talk about God. I'm done with you guys. And so they come walking up and John's trying to proclaim this idea of repentance to warn people. And he's got, and these are folks that don't necessarily agree with that message. Therefore, bear fruits. This is a popular image. The outcome of our life, our relationship, our work, that's our fruit. Our fruit is this. 
When you die, who shows up at your funeral? You know, the, the fruit of our life is the degree to which our, our children rise up and call us blessed. The fruit of our life is those people we've poured into around us. So when John has this idea of fruit and he starts talking about bearing fruit, it's an idea that comes out of the Old Testament. It's used 2 Kings 19.30. The fruit is in reference to the remnant of people that love God. They take root, they bear fruit. They take root in God and they bear fruit in God. Isaiah 37, Jeremiah 12, Ezekiel 17, Ezekiel 47, Mal Malachi 3. If you're listening to the podcast, you can pause and look all those up if you want. All of them reference a remnant of believers that follow and love God having fruit in their life. All of them do. So John making this reference to fruit, he's not talking about all of Israel. He's talking about the remnant of people that love God and if they bear fruit for God or not. What's your life look like? What's the outcome of it? Who have you poured into? So to hear God's word and accept it is the fruit or the beginning of fruit in our life. Mark 4.20, but these are the ones that have sown on good ground, those who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, some 100. This is why we study the Bible every week. We're actually interested in bearing fruit. And if you want to bear fruit, you have to put your roots into a place that actually provide nourishment. And if there's no nourishment coming up through the root system, there won't be a lot of good fruit on the tree. You have to be in the Word. You have to study it. You have to do it. Not just on Sundays, I would argue. So notice in verse 10 that John goes from warning the people to teaching the people, just like Isaiah 40 said he should do. So the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? They're asking for teaching. And he answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to those who have none. He who has food, let him do likewise. So notice this idea of him giving some instruction. The first question is to the people, the general audience. And he gives this answer of be nice. Help people out. Don't let people starve to death if you know them. Don't let people go without clothing. If you have some extra clothing, pass it along. If you got some extra food, help them out. And just this general principle, if societies lived that way, people wouldn't starve. There'd also be accountability for freeloaders. Hey, I'm giving you food now for 12 weeks. Are you ever going to do anything? You know, go and, and help yourself out a little bit so that a good person doesn't save you, but it does prepare the way for the Lord. And I think this is kind of Minnesota nice thing. We got a lot of nice people in Minnesota. And that does prepare the way for the Lord in your heart. If you learn to love kindness, then it's not hard to love a God of kindness. So being a nice person prepares the way for salvation, but it's not salvation. And this is a difficult kind of transition. God's shown us what it means to be good people. He, to love, to love, what, or he's shown you a man what is good. What does the Lord require of you? Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Micah 6, 8, one of the, one of, it's up on the wall upstairs. That's what he's asked of us. That's not that difficult, but that is not salvation. Jesus is salvation. Jesus forgives the sins. So we know what to do to be nice. And they say, what do we got to do to prepare for the Lord? And he says, be nice, start there. And then you're ready to hear what Jesus has to say. You've softened your heart. Verse 12, then tax collectors who came to be baptized said to him, teacher, what shall we do? First of all, tax collectors, just read that as Jewish for really nasty people that we don't like. So really nasty people that they don't like showed up and said, what should we do? And he says to them, collect no more than what's appointed for you. You have a job that people hate, do it with justice, do it rightly. Don't line your pockets off of other people just because you're in a position to do it. Pretty direct advice. Again, being honest in your dealings doesn't save you, but it prepares the way to get saved. 
Don't do things that are horrible, which you'll harden your heart into. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, read that as Jewish for really nasty Gentiles that we don't like, right? So the really nasty Gentiles they don't like ask and say, what shall we do, right? And, and here's another thing, and I think this is, oh, so he says to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely. Be content with your wages. So these are actual Romans that have gone out to hear John the Baptist. I think that's great. They're listening. What do you think we should do? And maybe they're asking kind of snarky too, like the Romans that are out there to keep the peace. But this was a call for Jews and Gentiles. And the answer is be kind, be honest, don't covet things. Don't want stuff. John doesn't preach against the civic job and he doesn't preach against the military professions. I think a lot of the Jews wanted him to preach against those people, but he doesn't do it. He just says do it with honesty. Right? So there might, I don't, I don't know what everybody does in the room. <laughs> if there's a tax collector in the room, works for the IRS. Working for the IRS is not evil, but working for the IRS and being unethical, that is. So there's this idea of just doing your job, doing it right. Boy, if everybody in the society does that, then you have a just and a fair society. The point is, regardless of what you do, there is a way to live under God's law and to do it right. So we're verse 4 and 5, quote Isaiah, where Isaiah says that they're to warn, teach, and to show. This is teaching. He's teaching people how to live and how to do it the right way. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered saying to all, I baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So he associated both of those images in Isaiah. Not only is he comfort, he's judgment. And John's conflated those two. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire and with many other exhortations he preached to the people. So John, Luke sums it up that John the Baptist had a lot of teachings. He's out in the wilderness. You can go hear him for a whole afternoon sermon. Probably preached longer than I do. And he sums it up very shortly. This is the gist of what John the Baptist would preach. Again, this is public knowledge. Luke could interview any number of people to get a sense of what, what John would preach. And he sums it up. The main point of verses 15 and 16 is that when people started to think John the Baptist might be that guy, the Christ, the Messiah, he overtly corrected them that he wasn't the Messiah. And he, made, he went out of his way to do that. He has the power of clarity and it reflects God and people love him for it and there's people that are going to kill him for it. But the truth of John is clear. In verse 16, it says, John answered. Um, he's answering this kind of general thing. It doesn't say if John read people's minds or not. It just says that he was made aware of these questions and he answers them. It does, in verse 16, have a quote, or your Bible should have a quote there. So this quote of what he says, I indeed baptize you with water, but one money than I. Um, when John puts a quote around that, he's actually getting that from some interview that he's had and the sandal strap idea the only thing in the talmud that is lower that a rabbi can ask their student to do anything this is kind of like professors with their grad students hey can you pick up my laundry can you get that done like a professor can kind of ask their grad students to do anything and if the grad student wants to get an in on that field you kind of say yep yes ma'am yes sir i'll help you out with that you just generally help that person out so that they can do their work rabbis were the same way in the first century except for one thing. Talmud says you cannot ask one of your students to undo the sandal straps on your sandals and wash your feet. 
that's filthy, it's dirty, you're, you're, you're lowering them beneath a human state. You can ask a bondservant to do that, you can ask a Gentile to do that, but you can't ask a Jewish student to do that. It's too low. And John saying this is like, hey, the guy that's coming here, I'm not even worthy to do that lowest of activities. I'm not that, the one that's coming is that much greater than me. I just thought it was a great way that he puts that. He points out different baptism. Theologically, people get all nuts about this. He says, I baptize you with water. We've talked about what that means. But he says, Jesus is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Two different, three different kinds of baptisms. Baptism with water, symbolic. Baptism with the Holy Spirit, awesome. Baptism with fire, not so awesome. Like you can flip this. But then let's think about fire. If fire is a purifying agent, those that are pure get through the fire. And Old Testament has examples of that with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The godly don't have to worry about the baptism of fire. Like, let's go. And at the Pentecost, they said there were little fires that were kind of, but people were on fire for Christ. We use that language. The idea is God's holy fire, at the presence that Moses had his face glowing because of it, we don't have to be afraid of that if we don't have impurities that need burning away. But those people where their heart is just full of sin in themselves, they need to worry about the fire because that fire will consume and it will be destructive. But John points this out. So you have this idea of Holy Spirit coming. We see that in Acts. The epistles speak of the Holy Spirit being this overwhelming kind of idea. The word baptism itself means overwhelmed. So to be overwhelmed with water, this is why when we do baptism, we dunk. That's baptism, is that there has to be a full immersion, a full overwhelming, because I, and I think this is part of the symbolism and why we baptize people backwards, is that you're helpless. You're in the arms of God. That water represents death. And you can't stop death. So all you can do is give yourself over to it. And there's something to say, and I died at the bottom of that lake, and what came up was something new. But I gave up my life when I submitted to going backwards into that water. You don't have that, you know, you can't really swim upside down like that unless you're really gifted. But you go back and you just get dunked like that and you're enveloped, you're overwhelmed. Why would we think the Holy Spirit and the fire would be any different? It's the same word, overwhelmed. And that idea of being overwhelmed in the Spirit, I'm in a room full of believers. Some of you know this feeling, some of you may not. But just being like, I've I give myself over, I'm dead to myself, and all that's left is the part of me that loves, adores, and praises God. Overwhelmed with the Holy Spirit. Not my spirit, but your spirit. And that feeling is, again, it's the same as baptism. You come up out of that water and there's something pure and free and wonderful about it. Baptism in the Holy Spirit, to live a life where you're not living for yourself, it's beautiful and wonderful and free to live for the Lord and to live with the spirit that God gives you. Baptism of fire, I'm guessing most of us haven't gone through that in, in the literal sense because we're not at that point in the year. But the disciples all speak of a judgment by fire. Jesus speaks of a judgment by fire. That fire too will be overwhelming. It will be death. There will be no part of you left that comes out of that fire. So if you don't have a Holy Spirit or a new creation that's been growing in your heart, if there's nothing but you in that heart, selfishness, if there's nothing but the world in your heart, there won't be anything left after that. So sin, like dross, can't survive the fire. What comes out has to be pure. And again, we see images of fire in the Old Testament where people, 
heck, Elijah went to heaven on a chariot of fire. Like, he's riding that stuff. He has no fear of fire. And I already mentioned the fiery furnace in Babylon. Like, we get images in the Old Testament where for the pure of heart, we don't have to worry about God's judgment. We can trust in God and that he is merciful and just to forgive in those situations. So his winnowing fan, another image uh, that we see all over the place. Threshing floors are a common setting in the Old Testament. It's where the ark almost got tipped over. It's where David buys a space. You know, it's these threshing floors are concrete patios where they would take the crops and they would let the wind blow it away. Well, what happens when you don't have a windy day? You get what's called a winnowing fan. And you literally stand there like an Egyptian slave and you kind of fan the crops and then you get somebody else with a fork and they throw the crops into the air and then the winnowing fan blows away the chaff. And that's why they had gluten-free everything, right? Is that, that shell, that casing on the plant just gets taken away. It's no good for anything. All it does is give you stomach aches. Sin is the same way. There has to be a sorting that happens that goes on there. So there's, if there's, if there's a, a cleansing process in your life, a trial in your life, we often call that a trial by fire. And so that winnowing, that idea is we don't run from those sorts of things. We say, God, what are you doing in my life? What do you need to get rid of so that I can live for you? What's getting in the way? And if you're praying for that, if you're praying to get closer and closer to the Lord, sometimes you're actually praying for a winnowing fan or a fire. You're praying for things that will purify and, 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 and get your heart ready for the Lord to make ready the path. So they gather the wheat into the barn. Even John, I think, is talking about this role of Messiah that's going to happen. He points out that he baptizes one way, but you got these other two ways coming too. So, if we understand that our tree is getting cut down and our sin's going to get burnt up, it would be nice to cultivate that sprout, that new life in our lives. And I think this is part of John getting ready for people for the Messiah. If we want to show that we're taking action in repentance, we get a water baptism. If we want to welcome the Holy Spirit into our lives, there's a spirit baptism. If we want to get sin out of our life, there's fire baptism. And these kinds of things, again, they shouldn't be that confusing to us. They should be things that we understand and that we walk forward in. And Luke's assuming that we understand or can pick up on these ideas. So we don't do John's baptism as Christians. We don't baptize him in the name of John the Baptist. Why don't we? Because Jesus showed up, and we now know his name, and John said, one that's greater than I will come. So we baptize in the name of Jesus, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Paul asks a question in one of his epistles, and he says, I just want to know, I know you guys are following Jesus, but have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And what does that look like? And, and again, different denominations treat this very differently, but there's an idea that Paul is more concerned about the Holy Spirit baptism than he is about the water baptism. That the water baptism is just a symbol. The Holy Spirit baptism is how you live your life. It is the inspiration of Jesus in your life. We get to verse 19. I won't dig too far into that. I think we've talked about it enough. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife, for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. So this message didn't go well with somebody who didn't want the winnowing fan and he didn't want the fire. Um, the sh long and short of it is this guy like w married his brother's wife and there it's it, if you want a good example just look at Hollywood like all the weird stuff with who's with who and all that 
complete indiscretion and, and promiscuity. That's what was going on with leaders in the Roman Empire, even Herod and his family. So John calls it out because the Bible says adultery is sin. John says adultery is sin. He repeats the words of God. And when you repeat the words of God, there are people that won't like when you say that. So when all the people were baptized, verse 21, first of all, we started out with all the people coming out to hear him. And then it says all the people were baptized. I think it's interesting. That means John's baptizing Jews and Gentiles side by side with each other, all the people. And it came to pass that Jesus was also baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in the bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came to him from heaven, which is said, quote, you are my beloved son in you, in, in, in you I am well pleased. I got to actually read the quote, quote right. So when Jesus is baptized, why did Jesus get baptized? He doesn't need to repent. We just heard that he grew in wisdom and stature. There's no record of him doing sin. So why does he need to get baptized? Part of this is Jesus submitting and identifying with humanity and doing everything according to the law. And the law says that this repentance is part of how we live, so he does it by the book. He submits to it. And again, this is a big deal. Baptism, especially baptism in water, it doesn't save you. If it saved you, then Jesus absolutely wouldn't need to do it. But it is a symbol that shares with your community where your heart is and what you're directed towards. So Jesus submits to this, just like he submitted to his parents back in chapter 2, because the Bible says to do it. And so he's giving us an example of living a model human life, and he doesn't break rules for himself. Compare our current politicians and if they follow the same laws that they make. Well, we call them hypocrites, right? Well, they make a law, everybody's got to do X, Y, and Z, but they don't bother to do it themselves because they're above the law. And we all see that as there's something in us that sees that as unjust and hypocritical. Well, God himself actually keeps the laws that he makes. And so we look at God and we say, wow, he, he lowers himself to our level and he keeps all the laws that he gave us. That actually validates the laws. It shows how important they are. It's why we still do baptisms, because this is good for us when we do these things. Then it says, while he prayed. That's kind of interesting. Who's the he there while he prayed? Most Bibles should capitalize the word he in verse 21, which indicates that it's not John the Baptist that's doing the praying. It's the Messiah that's doing the praying. Do you see that? While Jesus prayed, the heaven was opened. So that's kind of curious. He gets baptized, follows that tradition, does it in good faith. But when he prays, something very different happens. And there's a huge crowd. Again, all the people, verse 21, are there. And they see this. And the reason Luke can quote it is because many people heard this voice from heaven that said this thing. So he records this instance. Clearly, there's an interaction here. The heaven was opened. Eyes sit on that. The word opened means exactly what it means in the English. It means the heavens opened. But what does that look like? What does it look like when I look at the sky to say that it opened? That's an odd turn of phrase, is it not? So I'm thinking, I'm reading that and going, okay, something happened here that all of these people saw that they don't know how to describe in human words. The best they can do is the heavens opened. And then what happened? The Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. They saw something. And in the Old Testament, there's claims like this too, that they saw a glory that sat over the tabernacle. And, and, and it's a public heavenly witness. When Luke writes this, there are hundreds of people alive that could challenge what he wrote. 
Not one writing challenges what he wrote here. The challenge is on other things, right? Whether they should follow Jesus or not. But nobody challenges these accounts. This is, fa this is fascinating. That they can make these claims that are clearly miraculous and there really isn't any documentation of a contrary voice on this. Why? Because everyone was there and they saw it. They have far more than two witnesses that recorded this event. So Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and then a voice comes from heaven. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I see Son, Spirit, Father, all at the same place. All three aspects of God coming together at once. Jesus, the Shekinah glory upon him, and the voice booming out of the universe, the Word of God. In bodily form like a dove. Not an angel. Not a little glowing halo. Something that's seen. And the best word they got for it is kind of a dove that alets on his shoulder. Something comes and sits on him. And, the, and the, the language there is very particular. It was a physical, visible kind of thing, but they don't really have words to describe it. It is very similar to the cloud that you would see above the Ark of the Covenant. And that between the cherubim, there would be a presence of God. Um, Numbers 9.15 describes that. On the day that the tabernacle was raised up, the cloud covered the tabernacle and the tent of the testimony. From evening till morning, it was above the tabernacle like the appearance of fire. So it was cloud covered it by day and an appearance of fire by night. Interesting, isn't it? It sounds like the same kind of thing getting described, that God's presence gets revealed. So there's no doubt to those presence that this is an absolute supernatural event. And if we live by the Spirit and follow Jesus, the idea is that the Spirit is in us and through us. And when it moves, the rest of it moves. When the Spirit moves, we move. When the Spirit stays, we stay. Just like God represented in the Old Testament. Same God. Same idea. And the voice, I like this too. You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. So this comes from two different passages in the Old Testament. The first is Psalm 2, 7, and the second is Isaiah 42, 7. Um, so part of the praise music and part of the prophetic music, the word of God is actually the word of God. God cites himself. As with Gabriel, God doesn't need a second witness. He's his own witness. He's the voice. He's also the spirit. So however you look at that. But the idea that he's pleased, the idea that God would have a son in the Jewish tradition, a son could be a grandson, a son could be an adopted son. A son means this person has the same essence that I do. This person represents me in all things. When I'm gone from this place, this person will be my inheritor. And so the idea of son was much broader than a biological idea. And, and when it says my beloved son, this is a son who I love. It's not a son I put up with. It's somebody I adore. And the idea that he's pleased, this is interesting. If water baptism is an image of repentance for the rest of humanity, Jesus submits to it and does it to identify with humanity. But God intervenes to say, ah, 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 ah. I'm well pleased with this. This one's done nothing wrong. So Jesus doesn't have to say that of himself. The Holy Spirit and the voice of God say that to everybody around. Let's make no mistake. Jesus got baptized, but it's not for sin. I'm well pleased in him. He has done nothing wrong. So there is a witness to Jesus' 30 years of life being done with absolute purity. That the baptism's out of obedience, it's not out of repentance, and God intervenes to make that the case. 
So Jesus shows here that a righteous life is possible without a bondage to sin. It is possible. Jesus shows here that he's a worthy substitution for any other sinner. If I want to make you a deal you can't refuse, I make you a more valuable offer than what you're trading me. I'll trade you that car for your matchbox car, right? I'll trade you this house for your gingerbread house. That's when Jesus makes a substitution for us. There is no debate that we get the better deal. Jesus is a sinless life that gets offered as a replacement for our sinful life. But in that, there's, the, there's an absolute perfect redemption, and the purchase price is way more valuable than what we're worth. Jesus was well-pleasing to God, and none of us can say that. In Jesus, then, we also have the blessing of the Father through the baptism of the Spirit. The Lamb of God is inspected by God and found satisfactory. When the Lamb was given sacrifice in the temple, it had to be inspected. And we'll see that at Jesus' crucifixion. He gets inspected through all the laws of Judaism. But here he's inspected by God, and he said, I'm well pleased with this one. So the Lamb of God just gets approved at the beginning of the ministry. I, th I just thought that was an interesting thought. So this is Jesus' credential. A, a miraculous birth times two, John and him. A miraculous spirit and prophetic voices times two. Plus, you get the baptism, plus this. So as we see the first 30 years of Jesus' life, we have this credentialing that Luke is doing. And then he gives the genealogy. I think that's interesting. This is like when you watch a movie and they've got a scene before they do the intro. And that scene's just kind of an attention getter. Everything up to here in Luke is just the attention getter. Right? Look at all the miracles that have happened. Now let's look at his genealogy. Let's look at what we know about Jesus. He goes to the temple records, verse 23. And he gives a genealogy. We did a genealogy with Matthew, and you all know how I geeked out on that. Matthew is symmetrical. Everything's lined up. You got six, you got six groups of seven, or you got three groups of 14. You've got um, five women that are part of the, the genealogy. It, it runs from Abraham all the way to Jesus, moving forward in time. Luke does everything different. And people get caught up on this. Well, it's a different genealogy. So we need to walk through that a little bit. It, it says, now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, those are very important words, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. So as was supposed, we've, Luke has made it clear this was a Holy Spirit birthed baby. This is not Luke's biological child. So being the son of Joseph is a legal thing, but the words as was supposed by Luke is indicating that he is legally inheriting, um, he's legally inheriting Joseph's, he's in Joseph's household, but he's not Joseph's kid, as was supposed. So what's interesting here is we get to grandpa level with Heli in verse 23, and if you look at Matthew, that's not the grandpa that's listed. And people get that like, well, the, the two genealogies don't match. And then the conclusion of the secularists is that they're both fabricated. They're both just magically connecting to the right people. However, there's a perfectly easy solution to this. We all have two grandfathers. That to me is not, I don't know why, but that doesn't throw me into loops when I see two genealogies that have two grandfathers. That just doesn't bother me. What that says to me is one genealogy, Matthew, who's can, far more interested in kingdom and Jewish thrones 
Matthew is very focused on who inherits the throne. Biology doesn't matter to Matthew. What matters is who's the inheritor of David's throne, who gets the kingdom. Luke is far more concerned with the biological tracing and connections that are going on. So he's going to go through Mary. But the way you would say that in a genealogy that is in a Roman tradition, you don't include women in the genealogy. You can't say Mary. So he says, Joseph, as was supposed. And he puts that in there to have a clear indication that matches with what he said in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 about the miraculous birth of Jesus. So when we get to Heli, we're clearly going through Mary's lineage, the actual seed or biology of it all. Now, if you're Matthew and you want the throne of David, you go all the way back to David and just for good measure, you go all the way back to Abraham, Israel. Israel's king is here. But for Luke, if you want to tell the whole world and all the Gentiles you're part of this plan, you don't just go back to Abraham. You go back to Adam. This line of Jesus is the seed that was promised to Eve. And, and you get this tracing that he does that's the actual image that goes all the way back, and it's going back through Mary. So verse 24, the son of Mephat, son of Levi, Melchi, Jana, son of Joseph, Madahiah, Amos, Nahum, Ishai, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mathathiah, the son of Semai, the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, the son of Johannes, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel. I'm going to stop on Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is one spot where the two genealogies connect, but then they go back in different directions. Zerubbabel becomes a connection point. So these records are all things that are coming right out of the temple records. They'd be public knowledge. Anybody that wanted to challenge Luke could go down to the temple and prove that he's wrong. The reason they put genealogies in here is to show the credentials. That is until AD 70 when the temple's destroyed. After AD 70, it is impossible to verify the lineage of a so-called Messiah. So God cuts off that possibility. The temple's destroyed. It's burned to a crisp. We've talked about that before. Son of Neri, son of Malchi, verse 28. Adi, Kasim, Elmodem, Ur, Jos, Eleazar, Joram, Methat, Levi, Simeon, Judah. Oh, I recognize those names. Levi, Simeon, Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, son of Eliakim, son of Mila, Menan, Methath, the son of Nathan, the son of David. All right, so in verse 30, I recognize the names, but they're just naming them in honor of those people. It's not actually those people. But we go to David. Notice that with Matthew, David's son that he went through was Solomon because he's interested in who has the throne. But Luke is clearly unconcerned with that Jewish throne. He's concerned with the line of the seed. So he's taking a very biological route. There's no magic Jewish gematria numbers going on. It's just the number of people that were actually in the generations. So he shows an actual historical genealogy without trying to say what Matthew was trying to say. So he goes through Nathan. We have a bloodline. And by going through Nathan, he solves a very... Well, first of all, it's true. That's why he went through Nathan. But he also solves a problem. After Solomon, you had some messed up kings, right? And the way Matthew deals with that is if a king gets cursed by God, Matthew just eliminates him from the genealogy and skips a generation. And once you've pulled out all the cursed kings that shall not be remembered, Matthew gets perfect sets of 14, 14, 14. And it, end, and it ends with Jesus. 
With Luke doing historical genealogy, he doesn't get the perfect numbers, but he also avoids all the cursed kings, right? Which God said, you will not be part of the, you will not be part of the tradition. You will not be part of the heritage. It will not be your seed. So he's far more considered of the biology. Jeremiah, I'll give you one example of this. Um, Jehoiakim is one of these cursed kings. Jeremiah 36.30, prophet comes up and says, you're not going to be part of it. Here's what it says. Jeremiah 36.30, Therefore thus says the Lord, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have no one sit upon the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat in the light of the frost. He won't be part of it. And so Luke just kind of bypasses that. Matthew just skips his name and goes to his grandkid. So Luke 2.4 clearly notes both house and lineage being relevant. Well, here we're getting lineage. Matthew already did the genealogy for the house. And so Luke's fulfilling or finishing that record. Same uh, genealogy in Matthew from David to Abraham. Pretty well known. Jesse, Obed, Boaz, Salmon, Nashon, Aminadab, Ram, Hezron, Perez, Judah, Jacob. Now the ones I recognize. Jacob, Isaac, Abraham. So he goes right there. But Luke keeps going. And he goes, Terah, Nahar, Sirag, Ru, Pelag, Eber, Shelah, Kainan, Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, Methuselah, Enoch, Jared, Mahalalel, Canaan, Enosh, Seth, Adam, the son of God. So the son of God at the end of this, and I think this is interesting, Adam being the son of God means that he wasn't born of a woman, right? He is the nature and the essence of God being created out of the dust. And when he goes on to call Jesus the Son of God, or when he says God declares, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased, God isn't saying that Jesus is actually Adam. God is saying, I have someone here that I have helped create out of nothing. And I've made this person. So Luke will affiliate or associate Adam and Jesus as being two men that were made whole or in part by God himself. Absolute claim to miraculousness. Don't misread Luke. That is exactly what Luke is claiming, that this was a virgin birth. He says it in multiple ways, multiple times. And in the genealogy, he ends with Adam, the son of God. And God promised to Eve, it'll be your seed that will be the enmity of evil and will conquer sin and death at some point. This will get resolved. And when Luke does this genealogy, and instead of going forward in time, he runs from Jesus backward in time to Adam. He's, he's running us back to that original promise in Genesis 3 that sin will be overcome, it will be conquered by a seed of Eve, a biological seed that will come through. Well, Luke just demonstrated to us a biological line that goes from Jesus all the way back. For the whole world, this is the plan for everybody. Jesus is a real person rooted in a real time with real leaders. We can track the date. We know when it happened. Everything's connected. And then Luke's saying, here's the lineage. Go check the temple records. Go interview the people of Bethlehem. Go interview the people in Nazareth. Go interview the people in Galilee. Go interview the people down that got the baptism with John the Baptist. Talk to anybody. And you're going to find that everything Luke is saying, those people are going to attest to exactly what you see in the Gospel of Luke. He's writing a historical book. And he's documenting it that way. So this temple record is just one more block on that foundation that he's laying for us. Don't doubt that Jesus happened in real time with real people. The question of Luke is going to be, what do you do with that information? 
What do you do with the fact that God intervened on this planet at one point to give us hope and salvation? And if John the Baptist prepared the way, beginning of the chapter, the answer to that is repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you say, well, how do I do that? Start living according to what the Word of God says you should do. To repent is a set of actions that you have. It's not, you don't just have feelings towards God. You don't just think a philosophical set of ideas. You actually start living in such a way that pleases your maker, which means leaving your own plans to the side of the road, getting overwhelmed in baptism and letting yourself die at the bottom to come up a new person in Jesus Christ. I love that I get to hang out with you all. And I, I love hearing the songs of the saints and just, I, I, I got to think I'm super the one that benefits because my house gets filled with the songs of the saints every week. What a blessing, you know? And I, I believe to some degree that Luke gave us an absolute rock solid thing. People, when you're talking to doubters, we got evangelists in the room. When you're talking to doubters and they're like, okay, I'm going to read the Bible. What book should I start with? When I was asked that question, when I first became a believer, my grandpa told me, read the book of John. It's all about love. And then I read the book of John and it was all esoteric and off in the clouds. And I was like, I don't even get all this stuff. But as an adult, I'm looking at this. And if I'm a skeptic and a, and a person that wants facts and reasons, I think we need to be thoughtful about which book we send people to first when they get saved. And Luke becomes one where you're like, I just want to know that it's true. Okay, read the book of Luke. He wrote for you that kind of book. And so I hope the genealogy is something you look at and you just think, wow, that's pretty solid that Jesus came for the world, not just for the Jews. And Luke will go on with that theme as we go through the book. And we'll pick up where we left off next week. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we love you. We love your word. And Lord, we thank you that you didn't do things in secret. You did them out in public. And Lord, you've done everything you can for humanity to let us know who you are, to let us know what you want of us, and to let us know what we need to do to be your children. And Lord, we want to serve you. We want to love you. Help our hearts to start in repentance. Um, Lord, help us not to cover up, coat, or excuse our sin, but to run from it. And Lord, to become somebody that's more like you, we know we need to repent. We need to turn. We need to change. So Lord, do that work in us. Um, give us your mercy as we struggle through it and as we do it. But also give us your strength. Lord, you say you won't give us anything we can't handle. No trial that we can't lean on you for and, and endure and go through. So Lord, help us to do that. Fill our hearts with peace. Fill our hearts with joy. And fill our hearts with brotherly kindness for one another, that we may love one another as you've loved us. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.